0: It's time for episode 362 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, September 2nd, 2020. Clockwise, four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes.
1: Welcome back to Clockwise, pour in the water wait 30 minutes and your podcast is ready to eat. Yes, folks, I was listening to a audiobook yesterday that had a Meals Ready to Eat MRE in it, and I decided that that would be the perfect intro for Clockwise. I am one of your co-hosts, Micah Sargent, and I'm joined across this vast and ever-changing internet by my good pal, good buddy and dungeon buddy. It's Dan the Man Morin. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing well,
0: Micah. I like the idea that you could listen to your podcast for 30 minutes and then eat it when you're done. It It
1: feels like you're just eliminating all waste. That's what I like. I am excited to say that the web editor and producer of the Texas Standard, uh, Shelly Brisbane, is here with us today. Hello, Shelly.
2: Hello, hello. And thank you for sanctioning my comments before being introduced.
1: And to my left this week, it is a
0: VFX artist and the co-host of the Defocused podcast over on The Incomparable. It's Joe Rosenseal. Welcome
1: back, Joe. Hi, Dan. I would be remiss if I didn't mention also that uh, Shelley Brisbane is the host of Parallel Pods right here on Relay FM, and I apologize for missing that. All right, folks, we have four topics, thirty minutes, so let's kick things off. Uh, Microsoft announced that it is working to introduce some new tools to combat, disinformation online, uh, deep fakes, and cheap fakes, and everything in between. Uh, the There's a lot of video and stuff like that that's online that ends up not being real. And it made me curious because I had to kind of uh, revise and update my own process for doing this. What is when you see something online and you think about sharing it or you think about, you know, reacting to it and possibly talking about it? What is your online fact confirming process? Shelly, we'll start with you.
2: I guess the first thing I try to do is not click on a link that is very provocative first. I try to look at the link, make sure it's at least pretending to be of a site that's reputable. And if it's something that's just really provocative and out there, I'll often go to Google up whatever the topic is and see, is this uh, legit? And try to basically back into, so so first I'm avoiding the link as as well as the content that's fake. And then if I find that the topic is reputable from some other source, I might end up going back to clicking or sharing that link, but I almost always want to back into the information as well as to the link. And I have to say, this is kind of part of my job. And in addition to just whatever I'm doing in social media, uh, a big part of what I do is evaluating news and trying to decide whether to share it with my colleagues and see if it's something that we might want to cover on our news show, or whether it's something that we as news writers would want to think about in terms of putting together stories. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a big part of what we do. The downside of it is that you end up coming up with a list of trusted sources and excluding other sources that might have value. And that's just what the, the world has done to us. It's like, well, did The Verge say it was okay? Did The New York Times say it was okay? Did whatever source that's relevant that I trust say it's okay? Or is this site I've never heard of or this blogger I've never heard of not getting my attention because I've never heard of them?
0: Yeah, I so like Shelly. I come at this from a journalistic background. And the first step for me with pretty much everything I see online is just my default mode is skepticism. And that is, you know, it's kind of an innocent until proven guilty thing where it's like, I'm going to be skeptical of this until I have some confirmation that it's actually true. And that, you know, obviously has its drawbacks in terms of not being able to verify stuff that might be true and might be valuable. But I think more often, it tends to be something that you uh, you default defaulting skeptical i think tends to be beneficial because it avoids those knee-jerk reactions where you're sharing things that later turn out to not be true it's just i think the step one is the most important thing is remain skeptical and then do the work to back check the information you're seeing and don't just retweet things because they're provocative because that's why provocative things are often posted they're designed to be retweeted joe what about you
3: yeah i mean i agree with you and Shelley I'm not a journalist but uh I, I do look into the motivations of the person tweeting something um especially if it tends to be something more incendiary um and in the case of like doctored or um altered stuff there there are not really great ways to check for that for most people but um a deepfakes don't really seem to be the issue as much as like basic editing hacks. And usually that stuff gets ferreted out just by time. So if you see an incendiary video, it's probably best to wait a couple hours and somebody else will ferret out whether or not this is
1: uh, uh, true. All excellent and interesting answers. Um, you know, I pretty much fall into some of those things. If something kind of really gets me uh upset or has me going why is this happening why then i tend to even crank up the skepticism even more than normal i have uh i i started out as a journalist even outside of the tech space and so i have those skills that i acquired during that time but um Uh, It only gets harder online, uh, but luckily there are some folks out there who are trying to combat the issues. Alrighty, folks, let us move on to our next topic, which comes from Shelley.
2: So this may not seem like a tech topic, but my reaction to it had everything to do with my life online. And as a tech person, the New York Times came out with an article that says that the pandemic is, among other things, causing our social skills to atrophy. So we don't know how to behave around people anymore, apparently, because we don't see any people. And I uh, don't think we can definitively say whether even for ourselves, this is true until we kind of get out of this place that we're in. But I guess I'm looking for your hot takes. When you hear that, or when you read the article, do you go, Oh, my God, yes, 100% this is crazy, I'm a mess, I have no idea how to deal with people anymore, or is your opinion closer to, seriously, come on now, I still know how to deal with people, I'm a grown up person.
0: I, I, honestly, I feel like the saving grace for me has been podcasting because it is still the way that I primarily interact with people, and that's not so different to my life before the pandemic where I you know, worked by myself all day and my only interaction with people was online or via something like Skype or Zoom. So perhaps there's more resilience in that than otherwise. I do think it's strange that like the idea I was thinking just this morning about the idea of seeing, say, a friend of mine in in the real world and thinking like, oh, that'd be so it'd be weird. It'd be weird. I've only seen them on like Zoom or something. But that said, I was traveling just the other week and I saw some of my family. And other than these sort of physical restrictions of staying farther away and, you know, having masks on for most of the interaction it wasn't actually that weird. I, I think that it's overblown. I think that, you know, it, that's something that's fairly resilient for humans, and humans will tend to bounce back, uh, even if it right now, in the midst of this, it seems very much like something that, you know, we've kind of lost out on. I, I honestly think it will persevere.
3: Uh, I don't like people in general, so I, I don't see any uh, improvement or uh, degradation of my social skills uh, during this time.
1: Um, love it. This, this is kind of a, a tough one because I think that, uh, yeah, certainly podcasting. And for me, uh, I do something like four video podcasts a week where there's, uh, even more sort of social interaction that takes place or five, I guess, since that I'm a dungeon buddy too. Um, and so you're on video, you see other people's reactions, you interact with those people, but based on the uh, occasion that I need to go out into the world, I do tend to get a little sweaty around other people right now. And it could be because it's the pandemic. Um, and that's more, it's just kind of like, oh, you're a walking disease vector and you're a walking disease vector. But um, I, I, I have f- a name, Micah, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dan, the walking disease vector, Moran. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. So, yeah, I. I think that there is something to this and I think especially about the children who are um the, you know this is this has been their reality so far and for the the folks who kind of uh you you learn to socialize and you learn to interact uh when you are around others and when you are amongst your own peer groups and so there is some mist uh, learning experience happening right now that could play a role in social skills atrophying in the future.
2: This article was shared with me in a Slack this morning, and my immediate reaction was hashtag not all nerds, because I am a nerd, and I'm a podcaster, and I spend a lot of time in communities of trusted friends, many of whom I've never met. And that has only accelerated during the pandemic because I started a new show and I made some new friends. And And that was my first reaction is like, wait a minute, it's almost had the opposite effect, because I feel like I've been supported by a great group of new people. And that's probably an unusual experience. But it's one that's totally based on living my life so much online and in the technology world and just having so many of my friends who I don't Interact with socially and physically on a regular basis. And the times that I've interacted with people I know, family mostly. Uh, have not been problematic. The only weird social thing I've experienced is when I go to the grocery store, I'm worried that I'm getting too near other people and that they're going to freak out. I'm not like worried about them as much because most of us are wearing masks like we should, but I, I, that's a weird feeling to be like, I I need to give you a wide berth so that you will feel good about my being a good person or whatever. But I, I feel like you're right, Micah, about the effect on children. And I think for, people who get who derive a great deal of their social interaction from being in the same physical spaces with people and stuff like, you know, body language and physical facial expressions and stuff like that. Uh, it's probably has a different effect. There are nerds like me who uh, do a lot of audio podcasts. And when I do video podcasts, I I'm I'm real, I'm pretty comfortable in those little squares. So maybe I'm just a, a maybe we're all weirdos. Uh,
1: Alrighty, folks, we have reached halftime And I am so excited. I've got a smile on my face for this next, uh, this next sponsor because it's Text Expander. From our friends at Smile. Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to repetitive text entries, spelling, and message errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. It's better than copy and paste, it's better than scripts and templates. Text expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. I have talked at length about my love for Text Expander, And it's still true today. It just makes things so much faster, so much easier. And I use snippets all day, every day for all sorts of things. Uh, The other day, I had a support call with someone at uh, Xfinity, which is Comcast. And they asked for my address to confirm. I typed in semicolon A-D-D, and my address popped up automatically. And I didn't have to, you know, go in and type all of that out. Um, I use it at work all the time I have one for date slugs I mean it is everything all the time it's awesome I love text expander uh, and it can be used in any platform any app anywhere you type take your time back and increase your productivity clockwise listeners get twenty twenty percent off their first year. Visit Textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Our thanks to Text Expander for its support of this show and all of Relay FM. Alrighty Dan, what is your topic? Well,
0: Bloomberg has laid out a lengthy laundry list of announcements that Apple is expected to make at some point this fall. I'm curious to know what on that list has you excited whether it's new iPads or improvements to uh, the iPhones or smaller HomePods, or what is missing for you? What did you want to see there that you didn't? Joe?
3: Well, you know me, Apple TV. Uh, the That immediately drew my eye. 2021, uh, maybe we're going to get a refresh. Uh, it is troubling to me that uh, it, it, it specifies a, a new uh, CPU and GPU combination for improved gaming performance because they need to... Not do that anymore. It's not happening, and uh, they need to perhaps focus on something that is a, a more economical option um, than than what they currently offer. The re- new remote uh, is is something that again gets me excited, but seeing the emphasis still being on gaming makes me question whether or not this is actually going to be a good remote, or whether or not they're going to put a white circle around the button like last time. Um, so I don't, I don't know that that's the thing that I, I'm excited but trepidatious about um, what they're going to be doing with the TV.
1: Also, the whole thing with Air Tags and the leather thing—I don't understand that at all. Uh, I think that the Apple Watch is my the thing that I'm most excited about. Anytime there's a new version uh, that's going to offer new features, um, that gets me pumped. I I've had an Apple Watch since since uh, since the Series Zero and have enjoyed the Apple Watch, but it was in the later series that it really started to matter to me with its health tracking features and things like that, and so. Any additions to that, any sensors that are going to get added to that have me very excited. Um I'm a little – I knew that at some point there'd be a new Apple TV coming, and I'm a little annoyed that it potentially is coming sooner rather than later because – I just added an Apple TV 4K to my setup only because I wanted this the white circle. No, I'm kidding. Only because I have a, <laughs> a 4K television that up to this point, I had not used uh, a 4K you know streaming box with it. Um, but as far as the smaller HomePod goes, I don't see how that's going to help them sell more HomePods, but we'll see, I guess. Shelly, what are your thoughts?
2: So I knew I was going to pick last, so I prepared a last pick. <laughs> <laughs> I know I wasn't gonna get, but as it as it turns out i'm I'm kind of happy with mine uh, I like any new developments in iPads, having of course just bought an iPad because timing is everything, I'm looking forward to any improvement in the lower end of the iPad line, because so much attention has been given to the iPad Pro, and it's about time for some of the the edge-to-edge features and just various other things from the Pro line to move down to the iPad Air, and perhaps for the physical size of the device to change a little bit. And I'm not excited in the sense that I'm going to go buy another iPad because it's just not going to happen, but I like to see Apple introduce a technology, work it a little bit on the pro line, and then it finally works its way toward what are affordable iPad, right? To think about the iPad line that I, I love that there's a line. I mean, used to there wasn't and iPads were quite expensive, but now you really have a choice and you can't go wrong even with a low end iPad in terms of the software side. And so it's pretty cool that uh, there is hope for uh, better hardware.
0: Yeah, if you asked me a few months ago, I think the thing I would have picked is those uh, over-the-ear headphones that we're talking about, these new Apple headphones, the so-called AirPods Studio or whatever they end up being named. But I've been using AirPods Pro for like a long time now, like almost a year, and I've become kind of a convert. So now I'm not sure if I'm in the market for that or not. Um, Similarly, the iPhone, like the idea of this smaller iPhone that's been bandied around with a 5.4-inch display, I love the idea that Apple is offering a smaller iPhone. It's not probably the iPhone that I'll end up buying, but I love the idea that they're expanding that. Like Shelly says, like there's a line, there are options, right? Like rather than just like, well, you can have a large phone or an extra large phone. Um, So those are things that I am excited to see, even if they're not products for me. The thing that I feel like is missing from the list though, and you know, obviously this is something that's coming. It's just not mentioned in this report are the Apple Silicon-based Macs, which is the thing that I am by far the most excited about this fall. And the thing that I will almost certainly be purchasing one of as soon as it's available I mean, assuming that it's the model that I want. Come on, Apple. The MacBook, the very slim MacBook with the Apple processor, that's what I want. Uh, But thank you all for your thoughts on that. Let us go to our
3: final topic today, which comes from Joe. So the Hollywood Reporter uh, reported that New Zealand-based Weta uh, Digital has inked in a deal with uh, Amazon Web Services to move much of its facility infrastructure to uh, cloud services. Other studios and VFX are also eliminating physical hardware and physical offices. Some still maintain the physical workstations, and you uh, connect in uh, digitally uh, with a, a, a remote desktop like solution. Um, as as they move their stuff to the cloud and other. Kinds of businesses are also moving to the cloud. Do you ever see yourself in a situation where you'd want to have a high performance virtual workstation off site that you could get your work done without having to maintain any hardware that you just like log into? Uh, The the dream of like 1970s terminals?
1: Um, I don't often dream in sort of the the, uh, visuals of the 1970s, but that'd be cool. But I do absolutely think that this would be really awesome. Uh, I have this problem of being able to be enthusiastic about almost anything. And so (laughs) there's a part of me that would like, I know if this was available, I would spend, you know, uh, like 50 bucks to rent out a uh, visual, what am I trying to say a a, uh, computer graphics terminal for a day and just play around with that. And then, oh, there's some uh artificial intelligence machine learning terminal I could try out for a day. Oh, let me try that out, see what I can learn about uh coding for AI. And so this would kind of be an issue for me because I'd go to some sort of online marketplace where it's like, uh, you know, wire into this terminal, wire into this terminal. Oh, you can play around with uh With disease vector mapping, or you can learn about the human genome with this uh, terminal. And I would just be add to cart, add to cart, add to cart, add to cart. So it may be good that I don't. It's not that easy as it stands. uh, But I, on occasion, will co-host on a show on Twit called Windows Weekly. And Mary Jo Foley, who is one of the co-hosts on that show, is kind of the uh, power platform, online, cloud services, uh, everything in the cloud, virtual machines, expert. And some of the stuff that she regularly talks about is fascinating and exciting. And Even if I didn't go out and, you know, pick all these different things and add them to my cart, I think that the one thing that would be fun is if at some point I needed to edit a podcast or edit a video or something like that, and the machine that I had with me, say an iPad, was not quite capable of of handling the tasks that I needed, uh, the particular tasks that I needed, just going to a virtual machine and doing it from the iPad, that would be super cool. Shelly, what are your thoughts?
2: Most of the work I do involves pushing words around the screen, and I am somebody who actually like having files on, and I I like controlling the stuff that I have and having access to it. Having said that, I think the one thing I would use this technology for would be for audio editing and post-processing and that sort of stuff. I've used the Auphonic service, which allows you to send audio out and have it processed and returned to you in you know allegedly pristine form and that's kind of fun because you don't neither do you have to babysit it on your own machine or do you have to feel like you have to have the most powerful machine out there uh, and I, a long time ago in the distant past, I, I worked for a publication called Supercomputer News, and we wrote about nothing but this. So people have terminals or workstations on their desk, and they're doing incredibly complex uh, visualization and other uh, video-based tasks that required computing power that was hundreds of miles from where they were. And the promise of that was you had a very beautiful display on your desk so that you could see the visual representation of the work that was being done on the supercomputer. And so for people who do that kind of work, it, it can be weather mapping, it can be genome mapping, it can be uh, any sort of biomedical uh, work. I think that's great. And uh, it just I'm, it's not going to help me when I'm pushing words around or editing my three or four podcasts a week. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much in the same boat as Shelley here. A lot of the work I do is writing, and that's not something that's particularly intensive. I certainly don't need cloud computing for that. Uh, the podcasting angle, certainly interesting, but I also feel like maybe the bottleneck then might be my connection if this were me specifically. I can see the benefits of not having to deploy a lot of expensive workstations to a bunch of people and being able to centralize that. But it does come with its fair share of drawbacks right now, including, you know, what do you do when your cloud computing goes offline? Nobody can work. And it takes out not just one person because their computer went down, but literally everybody potentially. Um, so I, I loved used to love the idea of those slim terminals back when that was a dream in the 90s too. And I do still like the idea of having the ability to log into, say, the same user account basically no matter what mac i used i could like type in my username and it would load the same files and the same desktop and the same preferences and all that like i love that idea of not having to maintain two separate macs with you know their own various setups and files and apps and all that stuff but it does seem like we've gotten to the point where mobile devices especially are so powerful and our computing devices are so powerful that in all but perhaps those most extreme circumstances you're better served by having those devices on your desk than in a data center
3: somewhere. Joe, wrap it up for us. Yeah, I mean, and, and you kind of knew you guys would all say that because you guys are all <laughs> writers and podcasters. But uh, I I I, uh, I I think this is neat for my particular industry because uh, one of the major limitations is the security of the content that uh, we work with. So it's been difficult to uh, have uh, the ability to work from home prior to the world nearly ending. Um so it is a, a, an interesting side effect of all of this that uh, cloud computing exists, it gives us the uh, power and performance of either our workstations in a physical office or the, uh, or the cloud-based uh, virtual uh, workstations, and that we can process stuff as we would if we were at our uh, machines at work with whatever hardware we happen to have at home. Um, I, I think that that is advantageous for uh, for artists' flexibility, perhaps going forwards in the future. Um, and what is commitment to this um, perhaps solidifies it as a, a workflow that maybe is more permanent. Um, uh, so we'll see, see see how that goes.
1: righty, folks. Looks like we have just enough time for a bonus topic. But before we get there, I'm excited to tell you that this episode of Clockwise is brought to you by SideQuest for Slack. What a great name! When it comes to help desks and request tracking tools, we all seem to share that same love-hate relationship. For many teams, they're the only way to process a large volume of requests efficiently and reliably, but at the same time, they can feel incredibly impersonal, old-fashioned, and inaccessible. SideQuest is a new app that lets you create help desks and personal task inboxes that teams love 100% inside Slack. It combines the reliability of traditional ticketing systems and the ease of use of modern task managers inside Slack, the place where teams communicate already. Plus, it allows your workspace members to create tasks in public or private support channels, but also for each other in personal task inboxes. And for private Slack channels, it works like a mailbox. Everybody can submit tickets, but only designated agents can see what's going on inside. That's great for confidential requests. SideQuest is made in Germany, so you're fully protected by GDPR, are one of the world's strictest privacy, excuse me, one of the world's strictest data protection laws. It takes just two clicks to install and comes with interactive onboarding. Plus, you can sign up for a 30-day free trial, no credit card or personal data required. Open up your new help desk today and test SideQuest for one month free of charge by visiting getsidequest.app clockwise. Then use the promo code clockwise for 50% off for the, next, for the first six months. Create help desks and personal task inboxes that teams love with SideQuest 100% inside Slack. That's getsidequest.app slash clockwise and the promo code clockwise for one month free. Our thanks to SideQuest for Slack for its support of this show and Relay FM. Alrighty, folks, here's my bonus question. If you were a wrestler, what would be your entrance theme song? Shelly, we'll start with you.
2: This is the hardest question of the entire show, <laughs> just want you to. but I decided to go with the Ramones. Sheena is a punk rocker, because if I were a wrestler, I would 100% have a mohawk.
0: I was torn between something very non-threatening, like Don't Stop Believin', or the end of the 1812 Overture by Tchaikovsky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Both good answers. Joe?
3: Uh, well, it can only be Britney Spears' Toxic.
1: Oh my <laughs> goodness, that's such a good answer uh, for me. It's the Golden Girls theme song. Thank you for <laughs> being a friend. I mean, what, can you imagine? They'd be like, what is happening here? And then I'd take them down. Uh, and then I'd ask them to be my friend. Alrighty. I am excited to say this was a fantastic episode. All that's left is to thank our incredible guests. Shelley Brisbane, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me back.
1: And Joe Ros- Rosenstiel, thank you so much for
0: being here. Thank you. And, Micah, that's it for another episode. We should, I guess, come back next week. And until then, we remind everybody listening out there, watch what you say.
1: And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody.